Welcome to the Thurfield Chapel Sermon Podcast. Right, good morning. Great to see you. Welcome. Um, greetings if you're watching online. If you don't know who I am, my name's Paul. I serve as part of the leadership team here as one of the elders and pastor uh, at Thurfield Chapel. Uh, we're, we're back in Luke again. Um, when we started the series, we had some gospel journals that we handed out. So if you're the type of person who likes making notes, uh, we had some of these available, the space to, to make notes. Not everyone works that way, so you don't need to do uh, that if you don't want to. But we uh, got a new stock come in this week. So if you've joined us since then and you don't have a cos- uh, copy of the, one of those gospel journals, they're available there on the back table. Um, you can either pick one up on your way out, or if you want one now, either wave your hand and I'm sure someone will give one to you, or you can just go and grab one. Uh, but yeah, you're welcome to use those if they are helpful to you. Does anyone want one? Yeah, they are free. We're not going to charge you for them. But yeah, you can always pick one up on the way out uh, if you want as well. But yeah, whether you're working from one of these gospel journals or you've got a paper Bible or a digital Bible, it'd be great if you have that open at Luke 10 uh, as we look through this passage. Now, first, let me just pray once again. Father, we thank you uh, that you are the God who has revealed yourself to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. The the written word testifies to uh, the living word, uh, and we pray that we would see, that we would know, uh, that we would treasure and delight ourselves in him more uh, this morning. Amen. So, the good life. What do you need to live the good life? Uh, It's something that we all want to live. Everyone wants to live the good life, but how do you actually live the good life? What do you need to live the good life? There we go. And this is a key example of advertising, saying that this is what you need. You need this product. Now, it might be chocolate, might be perfume, might be aftershave, might be a phone, might be a a car. When you watch those adverts, it's generally presented that the person who has those things, they're living their best life. Maybe with perfume and aftershave, they're living some surreal dream. I don't always get it. But they look very attractive and they look very happy. So it's presented, you know, have this thing uh, and you will experience your best life. I did a little test uh, earlier today. I thought I'd look um, online and just type, you know, what do you need to be happy and there's lots of uh, websites or articles that will say, you just need these three things or these five things maybe. Included on that website are adverts, which is somewhat ironic. So you need these three things, but then there's also these adverts saying, and you need this as well. So advertising, this big thing telling us this is what you need. Advertising's big in the business world. Uh, because uh, in the business world, the good life is measured by success. No, sell, sell, sell. Get people to, to buy your product. And if profits are up that year, it's been a good year. You're living the good life. Or what about um, movies uh, and the music industry? Where do they say you will find the good life? Many different stories that you get presented in film, in song. One of those is love. 
this desire to love or to be loved, more often than not, that's equated with sex when it comes to, to films and music. There's one uh, TV series fairly recently where the main character was lamenting the perceived tragedy that this other character may have died a virgin. As though they've, they've missed out on the good life. How sad that must be. Because of this, this equation with, with sex is needed to experience the good life. And it's so pervaded now our culture that the biblical teachings on sex and the restrictions of that within the biblical definition of marriage are no longer seen as simply prudish, but as harmful to human flourishing. So we have a culture that struggles to, to comprehend how anyone can live a, a celibate and yet fully satisfied life. These things that voices around us say you need to live the good life. And these essentials are ever increasing. So a few years back, one philosopher wrote that access to the internet should be considered a human right. And this is an ivory tower thinking. So in 2030, the government's aim is to have high-speed broadband across the nation. And a few years ago, one of Labour's manifestos was to make internet broadband free for the nation. That was how they were hoping to secure votes. Now, in doing a bit of research uh, on this, I, I'm no Ben Schofield when it comes to politics, but I found it easier to find information on the government's plans for broadband than for NHS dentistry. There's just all these sort of Things that we're told are essentials. You need all these things. Constantly being added to this cacophony uh, of voices. If you want to flourish as a human being, you need this, and you need that, and you need this thing over here, and you need that thing too. And none of the things that we've talked about uh, are necessarily evil in themselves. But when they get elevated to be this position of gatekeepers of the good life, they break their bounds. And as we've seen on the news sort of recently with the flooding, when something breaks it, its bounds, its pre-appointed boundary, as the rivers break their banks, the results are destructive. And suddenly all these things are presented to us as essentials. You need these things in life. These are human rights. You have a right to it. And so some will fight to seek to secure. Others will get pushed to one side in that scuffle, led to believe that they're just missing out in life. And yet, all, as all these messages circle around us, there is one message that stands out. One message that is different is the message of Jesus Christ. And that message of Jesus Christ says, don't chase after all these other things. Because everything you need is found in Jesus. And we're going to look at how our passage uh, this morning brings us to that conclusion. So last week we started this new section uh, in Luke uh, as Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem, this place where he's going to bring to fulfillment God's plans uh, and God's promises. We saw how Jesus said that to follow him means to experience and to face rejection. 
Because he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to experience rejection. It's not an easy road. And yet there's no higher calling. There's no greater privilege. There is no greater treasure. We saw last week the knowing and following Jesus. Our passage uh, begins this morning with Jesus appointing and sending out 72. And you may see, if you are following in a different translation or in the footnotes of the NIV, some uh, Bibles will say 70. Now, last week we touched a, a little bit on Bible translation and uh, how the documents that we have, you know, they've come down from the original documents. And before the printing press, they had to be copied out by hand. And the scribes, the people who copied it, on the whole, did an excellent job. Occasionally, sort of errors crept in when copying. Now, no major Christian doctrine is affected by any of these things. And because we have so many thousands of documents, scholars are able to look at them and they can see where like, errors have, have come in. Uh, and so they're pretty confident as to what the original text is. There's the odd occasion, and this is a case in point, where it's very difficult to decide. Because the textual evidence is pretty much evenly weighted. About 50-50 in terms of documents that say 70 and ones that say 72. I have a theory about why that's the case. I'm not going to go into that now. What is significant, though, is that both the numbers 70 and 72 hold significance uh, in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, in the Hebrew Bible, that lists uh, amounts to 70 nations. Uh, in the Greek translation, which was around at the time of Jesus, that list comes to 72. So whether the original number was 70 or whether it was 72, now it may well be that what is being highlighted here is how this gospel message is to go out, not just to the 12 tribes of Israel, but to all nations. So Luke's already mentioned about Jesus sending out the 12. He's the only one who records Jesus sending out the 72. And that's one of Luke's themes, is showing how the gospel goes out to all. So that summary we've had of Luke's gospel, written to demonstrate how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's plans, his promises from the very beginning, his purpose has always been. The blessing of his presence extends to the whole earth. And so this promise of Jesus, this promise of the good life is open to all people, but it is only found in Jesus alone. What we need is we need Jesus. Two sides of that we're going to look at this morning. All you need is Jesus. He's the source of life uh, and Jesus, the source of joy. Uh, so we begin then with Jesus, the source of life. After this, we read, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So it begins after this. After what? Well, after what we read last week, Jesus' teaching about following him is not going to be easy. It will involve experiencing rejection. But that's not the whole story. Because Jesus says here that the harvest is plentiful. 
So there are going to be those who will reject Jesus, who will reject his messengers. They will reject this message of the gospel. But there's also going to be many, many people who will accept it. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into his harvest field. 72 isn't going to cut it. It needs to be more workers As these disciples are sent out, they are also to pray that others will join them. So it's not that we sit on the sidelines and we pray for others to do the work, but that we pray that others will join us in this work of sharing the good news of Jesus. Then Jesus says in verse 3 to the disciples, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. And we've already considered how they'll be hostile responses to this message, going out like these lambs uh, among wolves. And so if you're being sent out on this perilous mission, what do you need? What would you take with you? If you think about films, that scene where they're heading out on, on this mission, there's danger ahead. And normally what happens, you have those close-up shots, don't you, of things like swords or guns or gadgets been, been picked up. And then suddenly like someone's strapping something across their shoulder and throwing something on them and buckling all these belts. So you get all these close-up shots and then the camera pans out and you see them standing there all geared up as they walk towards the camera in slow motion with a dramatic music. They're all ready to go out on their mission doesn't happen here. We get none of that. And what's the reality? Jesus says to them, don't take a purse or a bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. Seems a bit extreme. I mean, it's like when we greet people on the road, it normally involves walking past someone and saying, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. You, uh, by that point, you've gone so far apart that you can't hear the conversation anymore. Uh, in those days at that time to greet someone on the road, it was a significant interruption in your day. Jesus says, we're on a mission here. We're not wasting time. There's no slow-mo scenes in this. You're going to go out. So don't take purse, bag, sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating uh, and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. So instead of taking their own provisions, uh, they are to rely on hospitality. They're not to move around from house to house to try and find uh, a better deal, but to trust that what they need uh, will be given to them. And actually this approach seems somewhat at odds with what Jesus has just said in verse 3. If Jesus had said to the disciples, go, I'm sending you out like lambs uh, among other lambs and sheep. We go, okay, now that makes sense. Kind of, I'll be welcomed in by the others and we'll just share in the, the same sort of food and stuff. But Jesus says, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. I mean, based on this reading, we should expect the disciples to be armed to the teeth as they go out. But have a look again at verse 3. This makes all the difference. Jesus says to them, Go, I, 
am sending you. Go, I am sending you. Jesus is the one who's sending them. And that makes the world of difference in terms of what they need because it's Christ and it's not the circumstances that determine the outcome. It is Christ, not the circumstances that determine the outcome. The disciples don't need to take all this stuff with them. They don't need to rely on their own strength and their own ability to get through it. God would see that their needs are met because Christ, not the circumstances, determine their outcome. We considered back uh, in October when we started this series in 2022 how when it comes to having one of these, a smartphone, they're really handy because you just get everything together in one small place. You don't need to carry your camera and your maps and every album you've ever owned. Uh, You've got it all in one thing. I think one of Ben's favorite quotes ever is a smartphone has nothing on Jesus. Yeah, you treasured that for a few weeks, uh, at least, and now I've brought it back to remembrance. Jesus is better than a smartphone. We don't need all this stuff. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And this is what the disciples are being taught here. I'm sending you. Trust me, I will provide everything that you need. If we have Jesus, we have everything we need. And so he continues instructing his disciples Verse 9, heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and you're not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And to have Jesus is to have everything. We see in those verses that precede this, but to have everything and reject Jesus is to end up with nothing. So Sodom is a city in the Old Testament that is destroyed on account of its wickedness. You can read of it in Genesis 19. And these angelic messengers who come to Sodom, basically God gives them one last chance. And instead of receiving them and offering them hospitality, the men of that city seek to abuse them. And yet here Jesus says that the towns in Galilee where he has been ministering and which have rejected him have committed a far more serious crime. And it's shocking stuff to say that it's better for Sodom than it will be for you. And then Jesus announces this series of woes. And a woe is to say, you're on the wrong path. You're on a path that leads to destruction. You're not on a path that is ultimately going to end up with happiness. And so Jesus says, verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. Now, Tyre and Sidon were pagan cities uh, to the north of Galilee. See there on the map, this Tyre, Sidon uh, is further up north, uh, beyond where that map is. Uh, Capernaum, Bethsaida, uh, 
in that little circle there. We don't know exactly uh, where uh, Chorazan is, um, but somewhere in that region uh, of Galilee. So Tyre and Sidon, they were these uh, cities that the Old Testament prophets prophesied against on account of their wickedness. Places that were happy to exploit people for their own financial gain. And yet these towns uh, in Galilee, again, that reject Jesus, are told that they have a far more serious charge that is leveled against them uh, than these infamous cities of Tyre and Sidon. Capernaum, that's a town in Galilee where Jesus spent a lot of time doing a lot of his, his ministry. And Jesus says, will you be lifted to the heavens? You, you won't be exalted. Perhaps this desire for Capernaum to put themselves on the map, to be something of a name. And maybe that was something of a driving force behind their approach to Jesus. They loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. They're wanting to be held in high esteem uh, by those in the culture, those who were rejecting Jesus anyway. They have this desire to be uh, exalted, but Jesus says that isn't going to happen. You, you're trying to pursue that, but the, the end result of this path that you have chosen in rejecting me is not going to be exalted to the heavens. It is going to be brought down to the grave. And in saying this, Jesus is actually using language from Isaiah 14 which is spoken against Babylon. Again, this is shocking stuff. So taking a small town, it's, it's like someone comparing Royston to Nazi Germany. This is extreme stuff. And if that's not shocking enough, then the same imagery uh, in verse 18 gets applied to Satan. So Capernaum is being lumped together with Babylon, one of the, the big bad guys, and with Satan himself. Jesus says, because you've rejected me, you won't be exalted. And this road that you have, have chosen, this path of rejecting me, it won't result in this exaltation. It will result in being brought down to the grave. And then verse 16 gives us a reason why. Jesus says, whoever listens to you, listens to me, but whoever rejects me, sorry, whoever rejects you, rejects me, but whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And to reject the message about Jesus is to reject Jesus. And Jesus says, to reject him is to reject God, the author, the sustainer of life, the one who alone is good. In him is light. There is no darkness at all. And to reject the light is to embrace, is to align oneself with the darkness. And to embrace the darkness is to share in the fate of the darkness. And that's why Capernaum here is getting lumped together with Babylon and with Satan. They will share in the same fate. And remember who is speaking these words. This is Jesus. The one that culturally people often think of as the one who speaks words of love. And that is true. What Jesus is saying here is, is this loving warning. 
and to reject him is to have nothing. There is no life aside from him because Jesus is the source of life. And therefore, for the disciples, to have Jesus is to have everything. But for these towns, to reject him, they can have everything, but to reject Jesus is ultimately to have nothing. And so what do you have this morning? Because if you have Jesus, if you know Jesus, then you already have everything. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter what you've got. The crucial question in life is how will we respond to Jesus? Jesus is the source of life, and he's also the source of joy. In verse 17, we read, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So the 72 come back after their mission and they are buzzing. They're on a high. And Jesus declares, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. The kingdom of darkness, it is crumbling. But then he goes on to say in verse 20, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus says this kingdom, his kingdom, it will prevail. Kingdom of darkness will not overcome it. And then goes on to say, but don't find your joy in this ministry success, but that your names are written in heaven. And the image is something of a sort of census. The names of citizens are written down, recorded, those who, who belong to God's kingdom. And Jesus says to his disciples, rejoice because your name is included in that list. That is your reason for rejoicing. You belong to God's kingdom. You belong to God's family. And so don't rejoice in your spiritual CV Rejoice in your citizenship, not in your resume, but in your relationship with Christ. And reading that this week, this is something that really stood out to me. I think some of you probably heard me talk before about the process uh, of preaching. And um, many preachers would agree, preaching is a bit like climbing a mountain. And you start off at the beginning of the week and just sort of like look up and go... uh, How are we going to get up there? That sense of foreboding that you get sometimes when you have an essay or an assignment due, that's a preacher's weekly experience. I just, you know, how is is anything going to come out? I look at this text and I can read it, but I I don't know if I'm going to have anything on a Sunday. Common experience uh, of preachers at the start of the week. So it, it can be a bit of a challenge, but it's also you know, a great joy and a great delight, a great honor to preach. 
Because as we've considered, now Jesus gives us what we need. He provides for us. One of, one of the verses I have at the top of my preaching notes is from Jesus feeding the 5,000, where Jesus says to the disciples, don't send the people away. Give them something to eat. And the disciples go, uh, we've got five loaves and two fish. We're not going to manage much with this. And Jesus says to them, give them to me. And as preachers, as we come to Jesus, as we ask him uh, for help, now graciously he provides uh, what is needed. But a bit like the disciples, I can relate to that sense of a buzzing uh, and thankfulness. When it gets to the end of the week and there is at least something to present. Okay, it may not be a gourmet meal, but at least I've got something to feed people with. And that sense of excitement, thank you, God. That lift got to the top of this mountain uh, and can provide something uh, for God's people. But that reminder here of Jesus, where is joy to be found? And it can be a great joy and a delight when you've got a sermon, when you've got that assignment prepared. I imagine it's probably similar when it comes to preparing music for the band as well. It's like, yes, it's ready. But Jesus says here, and saying to me, highlighting that reason, that reminder of a greater joy, and to be joyful not because I finished some work that it's done in time, not that I finished some work, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's where our joy is to be found and it is to be rooted. And there is a danger that if we start to look to success in ministry as a reason for joy, that very easily we start to become pragmatic, we become results-driven. We start relying on ourselves and our own resources rather than on God's Spirit. And Christ starts to become a means to an end. So we seek Him and we We pray to the Father. We seek his work amongst us so that we may be successful uh, in ministry. If that's where we start to find our joy, rather than the joy of knowing and delighting ourselves in him. And it's very easy, say for us, particularly for me, to start to focus on building up a resume rather than deepening that relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a temptation to pursue competence over Christ and be busy doing stuff for Jesus and finding a joy in seeing success in that rather than the greater joy and delight in knowing Christ. It's not that we don't work. Jesus has just sent out the 72. But the, the reason for our joy and delight is to be found in this relationship with him. Our citizenship in heaven. And we're going to come back a little bit to this theme, maybe in a few weeks' time when we look at the story of Mary uh, and Martha. And we are to give thanks to God for his great provision. We should be filled with joy when we see God uh, at work, but success in ministry is not the source of our joy. Because our citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, is not secured by our works. It's not secured by our successes, it's secured by Christ. Citizenship isn't a reward for good works. And although we know this, sort of theologically, 
It's so easy that we forget it on a day-to-day basis and we slip into this mentality of, you know, I feel good, I can feel good about life because I look at all these things that I've done and I've achieved. And, and when I haven't done those things, I start to feel a bit, a bit bad and, and my joy is sapped away. The source of our joy is not in our CV, it's in Christ. And Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. At this point in time uh, in Luke's gospel, he's setting out resolutely for Jerusalem to bring God's purposes to fulfillment, where he will die, where he will be raised again, to purchase our freedom for the forgiveness of sins, that we are brought out of that kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. It's the gift of God. He's the one who qualifies us. We don't qualify ourselves. Don't need to be focusing on building up our CV. We have the privilege of deepening our relationship with Christ. Jesus is the source of joy. Uh, And this joy of belonging to the kingdom is something that is open to all peoples. Have a look at verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And Jesus, filled with this joy, he praises the Father that citizenship, heavenly citizenship, it's not been put on some high shelf that only the elite in life can access. But it has been made accessible even to the lowliest, to the most overlooked person. Jesus is one who brings the kingdom down to us because the kingdom is found in him. Verse 22, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we can't make ourselves citizens. We can't make ourselves part of God's family. We we can't get to know God through our own intellectual or moral efforts. But we can know him through Jesus. And so you don't need a degree in theology or philosophy. You don't need to go on a big pilgrimage. You don't need to recite endless prayers. You don't need to have lived an exemplary life. You don't need to know the Bible inside out. You don't need to know the Greek or the Hebrew. But you do need to know Jesus. We do need to know Him. Because it's only in Him and through Him that life and joy is found. Where is the good life found? Well, verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples. He says privately to them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. To be blessed means to be living the good life, to be on that road that results in great joy and happiness. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So to know Jesus is to be blessed, is to be on the path of the good life. 
To have Jesus then is to have everything. But to have everything and reject Jesus is to have nothing. All we need is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that is true. Although all we need is Jesus. So you have given us everything that we need. Uh, And we can read through Scripture these great blessings that you have poured out on us, Lord, in Christ. And yet so often, Father, our lived experience, my lived experience, is to think that we need all these other things. Uh, And so we pray that you would help us to see more clearly uh, to know more deeply that reality that if we have Christ, we have everything that we need and such a knowledge would continue to change and transform us that we wouldn't be those who are seeking to, to grasp or to, to seize or to take hold of things uh, in this life. But that we can receive the things that you give as, as good gifts. And that whether we are found to have plenty or whether we find that we're lacking in some ways in the world's eyes. Lord, that we can say with Paul that we have learned that secret of contentment and that it is through Christ Jesus that we can do all that. Father, continue to work and to impress this truth on our hearts, we pray, because how we need to know and how we need to live in this reality that all we need, Lord, you have graciously given us in the Son whom you love, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or would like prayer relating to anything you've just heard, then please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. You can do so by emailing us using hello at thurfieldchapel.org or fill in the contact form on our website or send us a message on social media. Thank you again. and Please do join us next week online or in Thurfield itself at one of our services or events. We would be delighted to welcome you. God bless.